Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Um, I'm reading tonight from Matthew chapter 2. We're in a worship series for the Advent season called Home for the Holy Days, and we're talking over these weeks about the geography of Jesus. We're thinking in a literal way about that contemporary geography of the Middle East, of Israel and Gaza and that whole area of the world where most of us have never been, but which is ever in the news right now. And we're thinking a little more metaphorically about our own sense of place or maybe our sense of placelessness in this world God still loves. And so tonight, let's see, last week, We talked about Bethlehem, and this week we are moving naturally on to Egypt in the chronology of Jesus' own life. And I'll say that in Matthew 2, beginning about halfway through the chapter, this reading follows up uh, on the heels of a visit from the Magi, those astronomers from the east, whatever that means, who have been reading signs in the stars in the sky, and they have traveled a great distance to come pay homage to likely not an infant, but a young toddler. It's a long journey they've been on. And during the time of their travel and their visit, uh, we learn about a political dynasty that will be very important in the life of Jesus. Herod the Great is on the throne in Judea, a puppet throne of the Roman Empire. Um, He's going to die in this story, spoiler alert. But we will learn that his son, also named Herod, Herod Archelaus in this case, will take over and become the Judean king and will still be king at the time of Jesus' death. And so the story of his life is bookended by these two Herods, a father and son. Equally cruel, as it turns out. And so for tonight's reading, I must give a content consideration that in the reading we will uh, encounter violence against children. Um, And that will come up again in the sermon, though not in an extended way, but I want you to uh, be aware of that, and if you need to excuse yourself from listening to this story or to the words that follow, you're most welcome. Take care of yourselves. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now after they, that is, the astronomers, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod the Great. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Herod Archelaus was ruling Judea in place of his father, Herod the Great. He was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There, Joseph made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. With apologies to those of you who have heard the story before, but I've been preaching here for a long, long time, and only so many things have happened to me. It's the closest I've ever come to actual fear. Thanksgiving Eve, 2000. A well-used car we had been sold for a dollar by a benevolent family in Georgia that served us well through a harsh, wet winter on Long Island, now packed to the gills with stroller, pack and play, barely two-year-old in a car seat. The three of us making our weary way from New York to Lexington, Kentucky, where Lance's family was gathering for the holiday. Making good time, sandwiches in an ice chest so we wouldn't have to spend money or time on food, sputtering to an unscheduled stop on I-68 just outside Morgantown, West Virginia, pushing the dead car off I-68 across the wet access road where the snow was not yet sticking, toward a dimly lit gas station without so much as a convenience store. Did I mention I was pregnant? Jack was born before Christmas that year. You do the math. Did I mention we did not have a cell phone? Did I mention West Virginia? Outside whatever that town was. Did I mention the snow? Did I mention it was dark? Really dark. The way it gets in places without a lot of people. The guy in the gas station unlocked the door to let us into the 40-square-foot office. Yes, we could borrow the phone. Yes, we could borrow a phone book. Yes, we could sit inside where it was warm on two metal folding chairs he pulled in from the garage. They were not warm. Yes, we could leave our car there. Yes, they could probably fix it over the coming weekend. 
No, he couldn't say how much it would cost. Of course he couldn't, but it didn't really matter. We already knew we could not afford it. The clerk in the car rental place answered sleepily, Yes, we could rent a car. He had a couple on the lot. He would hold one for us. How much? It did not matter. We had to have it. We could not afford it. There was no good answer. Oh, and how would we get there? It was impossible to walk in the dark, in the snow. Yes, he could close the office for a little while and bring the car to us. Then we would drive him back to the office and continue on our westward way. Oh, but he could not have the baby in the car. Liability. Lance would have to go with him, drop him off, come back for us. We emptied the car of stroller, pack and play, car seat, ice chest, luggage, into the gas station with the guy helping us pile everything up, leaving just one folding chair open for me, the toddler, and my impossible belly. After an hour or so, the rental car clerk arrived with apologies for taking so long. It's slow going out there, he said. It's getting worse. Lance gave me a tired smile. I'll be back as soon as I can, he said. And off he went into the dark with one stranger. And there I sat with another stranger buried in our pile of stuff with a sleepy toddler with my swollen ankles thinking if he's ever going to leave me tonight is the night not because I thought he would leave me but because that is the most vulnerable I have ever felt in my whole life now imagine if you can across the world right now Families are fleeing, hiding, surviving, not surviving. I'm thinking of violence, of course, the headlines of what human beings can do to each other in Ukraine, in Gaza, and the West Bank, and Israel, and in places we pay a lot less attention to, Sudan and Somalia, the DRC, Burkina Faso, among many armed conflicts on the continent of Africa tonight. I'm thinking too of the climate crisis that affects poor countries disproportionately, of the global economic recession we might or might not be in, of persecution of LGBTQ people in countries where being gay is punishable by imprisonment or death. For all these reasons and more, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees reports that about 114 million people worldwide are currently displaced from their homes. About two-thirds of those souls are internally displaced, like in Gaza, where northern cities have been evacuated, but routes out of the region to the south into Egypt are intermittently closed off. About 38 million souls are classified as international refugees, 
pushed across the borders of their home countries into foreign places where they are welcomed or shunned, depending, what bet would you take between welcomed or shunned? What if your skin was black or brown? What would your odds be then? Consider British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's recently announced plan to deport asylum seekers to his country to, believe it or not, Rwanda. He says, if you come to Britain by boat because you and your family are endangered by violence or climate or famine in your home country, his government will send you 6,327 miles away and drop you off in a country about the size of the state of Maryland against which British citizens have been warned regarding travel because it is bordered by volatile wars on two sides. Consider US-American border policy put in place by the last president and continued by the current one to send asylum seekers back across the border to await hearings in our clogged, understaffed immigration courts. It takes months. It takes forever. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is the U.S. American fantasy of yesteryear, but hardly the reality for the Josephs and Marys of our time. Just yesterday, the Republican presidential frontrunner said, again, echoing, again, actual rhetoric used by actual Nazis, that immigrants and refugees are poisoning our blood and polluting our country. This is the language of racist Christian nationalists, and it should sound far more shocking to our ears than it does now that it has been pathetically normalized among many of our neighbors over the past several years. And then in addition to keeping certain people out, there are internal efforts to purge this country of identities and ideologies that don't align with one's own. Ban the books in order to ban the very ideas the books contain. Change the history curriculum to favor history's winners and deny the reality of racism, enslavement, genocide. Shut down pride displays. Eliminate discussion of LGBTQ plus identity in health curricula. Make drag illegal. Restrict health care to only the kind of health care that aligns with your beliefs. Threaten prosecution of those who help anybody get the kind of care for their body, mind, and spirit that you have decided is wrong protest, or at least harass, the people who take positive action to embody their belief that God stands with the most vulnerable. I'm saying Herod the Great was a nasty SOB, but first century Roman-occupied Palestine didn't have anything on 21st century fascism and geopolitics. Joseph and Mary and all the other parents of endangered toddlers under two had about as much chance then as they'd have now, which is to say, not much. By the way, in my imagination, Mary is pregnant again when they make the overnight trek across the Judean border into Egypt. Matthew says repeatedly that they took only 
the child with them like their Mandalorian stealing away with a singular baby Yoda. But we know that Jesus had siblings and his parents didn't know from birth control. It's entirely likely that there was already another one well on the way. If Jesus is on his way to two years old, I'm just saying, this little family was vulnerable in more ways than one. You might know about me that I don't like to pound a pulpit. A pulpit. It's kind of wobbly anyway. (laughs) Over big news stories. Global policy snafus that seem pretty far outside our ability to comprehend, much less affect from within this little church in this little barn. I mean... What if we could figure out all the complexities of the violence in Gaza and Israel? What would we actually do about it other than, again, vote in alignment with our values? Which is a privilege I'm glad to exercise every time I get the chance, but I'm hardly under the illusion that Congress or President Biden or Prime Minister Netanyahu or Hamas are waiting to hear from me or us what we think should happen over there. But that is not to say that Jesus' own status as a refugee, as an endangered and displaced child, sneaking across an international border in the care of his beleaguered and impoverished parents, seeking refuge among strangers who might or might not welcome them in, has nothing to say to us tonight. For one, it's another formative story that his family must have told him as he grew older. Like I have told my kids a hundred times about that gas station in West Virginia and how I wept with relief a couple hours later when I saw Lance return in that rental car to gather us up. Here is a narrow escape our family made together when you were too little to even be scared. They would have told Jesus. The story would include Joseph's dreams and the angelic messengers and all the people who helped them along the way. Because doubtless there were many, starting with the weird visitors from the east who had just brought highly inappropriate gifts for a baby, but perfect resources for a poor family who could fund their flight with valuable gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The ancient Near Eastern ethic of hospitality, too, would have meant many nights spent in many more stables along the way, hiding in the hay, an underground railroad of benevolent strangers who would ferry the young family to safety one day at a time. So Jesus would have grown up knowing that he had faced terrible danger before he could rescue himself, and that the kindness of strangers had made his survival possible. It's a pair of truths about the world that all children learn eventually, that it is truly dangerous out there, and that there are good people who will look out for you. At least we hope they learn that second truth. Maybe that's where we find ourselves in the story tonight at the point of considering that second truth. Like, if you have found yourself in danger, 
perhaps the physical danger of violence because of your identity or your circumstances, or the existential danger of losing relationship, losing your job, losing your safety net, losing your mind, losing your hope. If you yourself have been a refugee, no longer safe or welcome in the place you came from, still crossing the border under the cover of nightfall, still wondering if anyone on the other side will welcome you in, please hear me say, you are here now and welcome here. And as safe here as we can make it, given our own circumstances of place and time, let this place, no, scratch that, let these people, let this church be your Egypt. If you are fleeing, stop here and find here what you need to flourish for now. Also, there are lots of us here who are in a place now that we are less like the holy family on the run and more like the ones who helped them on their way. We have digested this story of Jesus' narrow escape to mean that we now are meant to ease the passage of the most vulnerable because that's where God's own empathy lies. This story changes our assessment of where we should spend resources, whose experiences we should center, which strangers we imagine this gospel we've got is for. Give us your tired, your poor, your trans kids yearning to breathe free, your marriage breaking down under the strain of hidden identity with bills you can't pay because your family has cut you off. Bring your refugee self to us, we've said. We will be your Egypt. We are ready to take you in. The gospel embodied by the Jesus we remember every year in this season can be no less than the room we make for those who have nowhere else to go. No less than embodied help, financial help, real resources, actual assistance, true friendship. Call it love. For the people in our world who need it most, lots of whom are too small in one way or another to help themselves. This Advent season, may we give thanks for the Egypts we each have found with each other and in other blessed communities of hope and help. And may we resolve together to be the Egypt someone else needs in Jesus' name and in awe of faithful Joseph and Mother Mary trudging towards safety with all the angels of heaven and a handful of benevolent strangers on their side. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people 
and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.